0: As we were singing that song, I was reflecting on my life this week and thinking if only I remembered to live every moment with the view all I have is Christ. All we have is Christ. What if we asked ourselves this question at the end of every short season, or at the end of a day? How successful was I today in the mission Jesus has given to his followers, belonging to him and being used by him, set apart to him, and sent as his representative? And then for me and and others in any capacity of servant leadership— How successful was I in unifying believers around these central tenets and striving together toward this goal? Perhaps we're willing to ask these evaluative questions, but then we also ask ourselves, how do we measure success? What does success look like in such endeavors to be set apart and sent? well, how do we think that Jesus would measure success? Or how is Jesus measuring our success? The question isn't, how do we measure success from the world's perspective or even from our perspective? The question is, how does God measure it in our lives? Let's pray, and then we'll look together at Acts chapter 14. Father God, we know that you, the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit are the one true living God. Each one of us is gathered here this morning because in some sense we know that we should be here, that we ought to be here. We pray that our, our hearts and our lives will be open this morning to knowing more of you, knowing more of your will, using your word to reflect back on us our own hearts so that we will walk submissively to you. So by the power of your spirit, would you draw those who have not yet come to faith in Jesus? And would you lead and provide for and protect and be the physician of those who know that we are your sheep. Today, Father, help us to see from the example of the missionary lives of Paul and Barnabas and the way that Luke portrays that in Acts. Help us to be able to measure success from heaven's perspective, your perspective, and not an earthly one. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to argue from the text today in Acts chapter 14 that Luke is is indeed writing about the success of this mission as Paul and Barnabas are in the midst of their first missionary journey. But that success isn't measured by popular acceptance. It isn't measured by personal accolades. And it isn't even measured by an ability to evade persecution. Paul and Barnabas are successful by faithfully living and proclaiming the gospel. In the midst of opposition, religious confusion, we'll see, and persecution when it hits its mark. This is the second half of their first missionary journey, and they have now moved on to Iconium. So there we catch up with Paul and Barnabas to see There is success in the mission from heaven's perspective, but much less success in the world's eyes in the city of Iconium. Read with me in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews, of both Jews and Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Jews, both Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. I want us to take note from Paul and Barnabas' ministry here that Christian success is measured not by popular acceptance, but by faithfully living and proclaiming the gospel. Now again, I think there's no question that Luke portrays this first missionary endeavor as a success but we might lose perspective and think that when he says a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed that that would be the measure of success from a worldly perspective as well. No, that anyone believes is a huge success from a heavenly perspective because people are trusting in Christ. All glory to God because it's all his grace and his doing. But from a worldly perspective we should see that what happens in Iconium, as it did in Pisidian Antioch, isn't good enough. This isn't success from the world's perspective. What we see happen is that there are hard-hearted, unbelieving Jews willing to team up with unlikely Gentile allies. These Gentiles are those who worship pagan deities of all shapes and sizes, and yet they ally themselves together. They do this, the Jews do this by poisoning their minds against the the followers of Christ. No doubt twisting what Paul and Barnabas believe and how they behave to make them sound like they're a threat of some kind. Therefore, they stayed for a long time. Wait, what? (laughs) When it looks from the outside like things are going south, as they did in the last city, they keep speaking boldly for the Lord. The door isn't shut so they keep faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And God reinforces this word of his grace that they are speaking. God reinforces it bearing witness in the power of his spirit by granting signs and wonders to be done at their hands. Again, the heavenly perspective equals any amazing display of God's power is a massive success. I know you're probably not like me, but I always try to picture what the angels do. I picture the angels like, do it again, God. Do it again. That was awesome. The earthly perspective is that although people might be impressed by these displays of power, they are yet divided, some siding with the Jews and some with the apostles. And once again, the opposition coalition unites and pushes them out with threats of mistreating them and stoning them. Paul and Barnabas are, are wise enough not to stand around and just wait for a stoning, so they flee Iconium to another region around Lystra and Derbe. And what will they do there? Continue to preach the gospel, faithfully living and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. How should Paul and Barnabas then view the success of Their Christian life and mission in Iconium. Was it a grand success? We're tempted to hear the numbers, a great many believed. We're tempted to hear those numbers and say yes, but that's only partially the right answer. For Paul and Barnabas, without a right perspective, a heavenly perspective, they would have been tempted to see Iconium and Antioch before that as a failure. I'm afraid that even a a rousing, motivating church vision that is about changing our city is dangerously close to this kind of worldly ideal and perspective. No doubt Christians should live for Christ in every sphere and aim to have the light of God's truth shine into every and all situations. But what is the goal and what is the measurement of success? Let's focus our measurement of success on regularly evaluating how am I doing in living like Jesus and how am I doing in building his church. By God's own working individual hearts will submit to faith will submit in faith to Jesus. But this is not something within our power to manipulate or control nor should it be. So we measure success by obedience to Christ. We measure success by obedience to Christ. We should see something similar as the mission moves into the region of Lystra and Derbe in Lyconia. Look at verses 8 to 18. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. We've heard similar things in Luke and Acts. This is the fourth such situation situation. This crippled man listened to Paul speaking. Paul was presenting the gospel. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And to make matters better, worse? (laughs) And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds to Paul and Barnabas, Zeus and Hermes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave them without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Here, Paul preaches Christ and heals a crippled man in Lystra, providing a specific example of what we read just a few moments ago of God testifying to the word of his grace by the signs and wonders he allows these apostles to perform. Combined with the Gentile audience's reaction to it, and then Paul and Barnabas responding to that reaction, this forms the central event in chapter 14. Again, I believe that the author is still presenting this as mission success, but we ought to be able to distinguish what merely appears as success in the world's eyes versus that which is successful from heaven's eyes. Christian success is measured not by personal accolades, not by recognition, but by faithfully living and proclaiming the gospel. In this situation, Paul and Barnabas do this clearly Uh, do this by clearly elevating Jesus as the only means to know the true and living God. When the people would have elevated them instead, they elevate Christ as the means to know the only true and living God. First, there is a great success here in Lystra as this, this man, crippled from birth, responds in faith to Jesus. The text says that Paul looks intently at the man and sees that he has faith to be made well or faith to be saved. That Greek word sozo, to be saved, means rescued or delivered from imprisonment or other affliction. And certainly it can also refer to the idea of being made well, healed. So I agree with Eckhart Schnabel's conclusion here. Since Luke's readers know that that Paul's message connects faith with Jesus, the Savior, With forgiveness of sins and with eternal life, the faith of the lame man probably includes both aspects of faith in Jesus to be made well, but faith in Jesus to be saved, to be forgiven and granted eternal life, and faith to be cured as well. Like all similar accounts in the New Testament of healing people who are plainly and irreversibly crippled. Do we see anyone in the audience being in doubt about whether this is the condition the man is in from birth? Nope. Then the result of Paul calling out loudly for him to arise, the literal translation there, arise on his feet, results in God's power to immediately, completely, and astonishingly restore this man's health. And everyone there believes that that's exactly what happened. He leaps, he jumps up and begins walking around, plain evidence of instantaneous healing. Again, I picture the angels praising God for the salvation of another soul, plus, this is my immaturity, plus high-fiving and fist-bumping each other at another miraculous healing. But heaven isn't the only place viewing this as success. The world is also drawn to things that astonish us. And those who are religious in this world are particularly drawn to the miraculous. Ooh, this is a sign of the gods. When we see the miraculous, we feel like we recognize the intervention of God. What about the care and control and providence of a God who sustains all things by the word of his power? An important part of this episode is the reaction of these Gentiles who worship Greek pagan deities. There's a regional tradition from this part of the world at the time, from a, from a previous legend that, that Zeus and Hermes had, had supposedly once come before in, in human form, but, but that almost no one acknowledged them or, or provided them with hospitality. If that's the case, These people would, would not want to make the same mistake again. They're ready to show their receptiveness if the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Zeus would have been the chief of gods, the highest and the strongest of the Greek gods whom this enthusiastic crowd associates with Barnabas. Yet another hint for us that he was the elder statesman of the group. Hermes was Zeus's messenger and mouthpiece, so they associate him with Paul as the chief speaker. Now, because this audience has this reaction, when they start responding this way, they're doing so, Luke tells us, in their their own dialect of Lyconian. So it seems that Paul and Barnabas don't realize immediately what is happening. It even gets to the point where the pagan priest of the temple of Zeus in that city is planning to offer a sacrifice of oxen in honor of these so-called deities. when Paul and Barnabas figure this out, they do not consider this elevation of their position as a success. In fact, it is entirely inappropriate and blasphemous to the only true God, which is why they respond in in the Jewish fashion of tearing their clothing to display their repulsion of such blasphemy. They beg the crowd not to do these things, and, and they explain that they are simply people of normal human nature. But they also do not let this opportunity go to waste. They are indeed proclaimers of good news. As Paul had already been preaching, we learned in verse 9, to many, if not most, of these same people about Christ. In this situation, Paul and Barnabas come, come at this from the angle that, that this good news means that From these vain things, vain things meaning that which is useless, empty, worthless. These things are are powerless and lacking truth. All idolatry and and worship of false gods, including elevating Paul and Barnabas to godlike status, elevating any man or woman to a status where we worship them. When they are simply, Paul and Barnabas in this case, they are simply messengers of the good news, they are not the message. But by this proclamation of good news, there's opportunity, Paul says, to turn from these vain things to the living God. Again, to contrast that these other gods of our own making are empty and useless and powerless dead. This living God, in fact, created all things. The heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Maybe your mind, if you remember, is drawn to Acts chapter 17 when Paul talks to the Gentiles at Areopagus and says similar things to this, to begin to get an in, to introduce the topic to them. No, there is a true God. You don't know him, but we know him, and we have come to tell you of this God. And that's the beginning of their inroads. Remember how we we said earlier, we have to teach people to fear God first when they're unlike the Jews. Or unlike some of you growing up in a Christian family, first to fear God, and then all of us must know, fear God, submit to his authority, we learn of God's place, we learn of our own place, we begin to see, when we see who God is and we see who we are in the narrative of scripture, we we see that we cannot live up to the law. No one can live up to the law, and so God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect Adam, the perfectly faithful Israel, so that in him, when he sacrifices himself as atonement and and to redeem us, and then rises again from the dead, in him we can have forgiveness of sin. In him we can finally be made right with God. But apart from that, we are all powerless, And so that's where Paul wants to go. We see in verses 16 and 17, he continues, this one true living God has been patient with the nations for for all this time in in past generations, permitting them to walk in their own wayward paths. Even so, he he has been bearing witness to his existence. This sounds like the early chapters of Romans. He has been bearing witness, especially Romans 1. He has been bearing witness to his existence and even his character by doing good to all people, by his sustaining and provision on the earth. Paul, himself a Jew, Paul knew that God had uniquely selected the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and God did not allow them specifically to simply go their own way. There's a quote that Brady pointed out to us in a, in a men's Bible study in an Old Testament survey. When we were looking at Ezekiel, Brady pointed out this, this verse in, in Ezekiel chapter 20 that made us chuckle because God says to his people, even when, they're in, even when not only Israel, but now Judah also is now in exile in Babylon, and he says to them, to the Israelites, you think what you have in your minds about going after other gods like everybody else, it's not going to happen. God had chosen Israel and he would not allow them to go after all the other gods like the nations of the world because it was through Israel that God would bless all the nations of the world and reveal Jesus Christ so that all of the nations could come to God through Jesus Christ. To Israel, God uniquely revealed himself and gave them his law. But even to everyone, Paul says, he has not been silent. He has not been without testimony. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Zeus is not the God of fertility, contrary to what they thought. The living God is the lord of all fruitful seasons that have ever been and ever will be. Any and all filling of your hearts with food and gladness has always been from him and no other. That is God's common grace to mankind. Paul is trying to say we did not pretend, we did not come to pretend to be Zeus and Hermes and gain a following for ourselves. We are messengers of the one true living God. And the message we proclaim is his Savior, Jesus, God's offer to forgive sin and grant eternal life. Now, you've heard me get specific because I know that that's Paul's angle to talk about Jesus in such a way, but we don't know how specific Paul was able to get in circling back to this central point about Jesus. We're just told that even with these words, he and Barnabas are scarcely able to restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. They're not getting it. So, what are we seeing in this section about mission success? Some people believing in Jesus is absolutely great success. And this crippled man's faith in healing is a success. But elevation and acclamation for Paul and Barnabas is not success. Elevating God instead is a success. To live and proclaim the gospel faithfully. That is the success. Is success in following Jesus measured by trophy size and number of Instagram followers? You're the greatest Christian I know. You deserve a gold star. This Christian is so impressive. Look at the number, number of people who follow his tweets? Or is success in the Christian life measured by faithfulness to be like Jesus and build his church? Many a heart, even ones that begin with faithfulness as the goal, have been lured into sin by this wrong measurement of success, either numerical following or personal recognition. And such is even a key feature of false teachers. Careful examination betrays an underlying motivation for an acceptance of acclaim and wealth for themselves. This is not to say that there cannot be such a thing as a faithful follower of Christ who has become well-known, but such is not their primary goal nor their litmus test for success. The litmus test is faithfulness, obedience to Christ. Paul and Barnabas and Luke would have us know that success is measured not by popular acceptance, nor by personal accolades, but by faithfully living and proclaiming the gospel. Okay, so we're seeing how these missionaries handle various situations, opposition to Christ, how they handle, the, handle themselves in the face of religious confusion, and even now when persecution hits its mark. Look at verses 19 to 21. But Jews came from Antioch, some 90 miles away, and Iconium, another 20 miles away from Lystra. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered around him, Paul rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby, And I want to read verse 21, although we'll look at it again next time. When they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. In a situation such as this, what does success look like for these missionaries? When something like this happens, how do we d- define the success of God's mission? Has God failed in his mission? Has God failed Paul? God's success is measured not by averting all, all persecution for his people, but by enabling us to faithfully live and proclaim the gospel. At Lystra, Paul and Barnabas' Paul and Barnabas's bold proclamation in past locations literally catches up to them. Opponents from Antioch and Iconium, especially the Jews who view them as a threat, We have been told that they are motivated by jealousy. These Jews convince the crowds to turn against them, who were not long ago wanting to sacrifice uh, or wanting to, to, yes, make a, a sacrificial offering to them. Sound familiar? From Hosanna to crucify him. Crucify him. Paul is stoned. The practice of executing a person by throwing stones at them and he's dragged out of the city. They suppose he's dead. They evidently leave him there. But God preserved his life at this juncture, and Paul is able to get up and return with the disciples back into the city for one more night to leave the following day with Barnabas for Derby. So Paul leaves, beaten and battered, nearly dead, If we do not view this through heaven's eyes, there's no question that we would not call this a success. But God has allowed them to faithfully proclaim Christ, and in each place, he has used that word of the gospel to bring people to saving faith in Jesus. Not only has God empowered that, but he grants them strength to preach in Derby and make many disciples there. And he grants them courage to return to these cities to strengthen and encourage the saints. That's success. So we do not give into discouragement because of persecution. And we do not give in to discouragement about what we might perceive as failure or even discouragement because of our sin and the sin of others. Jesus didn't say this would be easy, but he did promise that it would succeed. We just have to make sure we know what success looks like. Success is this Christ is building his church. Christ is building his church. And therefore, success for us is that we are his, we belong to him, and him we proclaim. We measure success by obedience to Christ. So church, let's focus our measurement of success on regularly evaluating. How am I doing in knowing God through Jesus? How am I doing in submitting to his way of seeing things? And how am I doing in faithfully proclaiming Christ to others? We'll never do this perfectly, so we must measure success by trusting God to use his own truth in people's lives and by trusting God to keep maturing us as well. But we'll have to be like Paul and Barnabas. We must keep coming back to measuring success, not by numerical impact, nor by the attention we've garnered, positively or negatively, but by simple faithfulness to live like Jesus and to proclaim Jesus. I want to challenge us today, therefore, to close each day and each week by asking how did I do today, this week, in living like Jesus? How did I do today or this week in proclaiming Jesus? That's going to lead to confession and repentance without a doubt. Am I right? But when we, but then we will lie down and sleep in peace, knowing forgiveness and trust in God's continued work in us. And so I I challenge us, too, to also begin each day and begin each week. The Lord's Day is on Sunday, the first day of the week. I encourage us to begin each day and begin each week by praying dependently and planning intentionally to pursue faithfulness in living and proclaiming the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're reminded in the book of Acts that we cannot do these things apart from you. In fact, the way that Luke continues this second half of the gospel and and the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, he begins this by saying that Jesus gave his people the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower them to be his witnesses. And we too are given the indwelling spirit to seal us, to secure us, so that we know that we are yours. We belong to you. We are your adopted children. And because of this, we also long to be people who are are faithful to the command, to the commission of Jesus Christ, to be your witnesses. And we are all too aware of our weakness and our failure, even our sin. God, we're aware of our fear. And so we seek your help. We need you. We depend on you. We abide in you. And help us to plan for faithfulness so that by your grace and for your glory, we will individually and together be more faithful to live and proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.